This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Good evening, everybody, and thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Thank you so much for being with us here on the program. And uh, I know that we weren't even planning on having a show this evening, but we just, I mean, we, we had to because there was a lot of breaking news, both in the state of Alabama. And also, I wanted to pay a tribute to somebody important to me. Uh, I normally don't do this, uh, but something personal happened in my life, and it's something that actually does relate to the audience. I don't know how many of you have heard, but Jay Holsey, sometimes known as Jazzy Jay Holsey, I mean, if you've ever listened to radio in Montgomery, I mean, virtually any station, you've probably heard this guy's work, even if you weren't hearing him. He was on the air quite a bit as well, and, and the guy had a fantastic voice. I, I think he had an even better radio voice than I did, but uh, Jay, we found out, just passed. And I don't have any details. I don't know how or why. I, I, all I know is that he passed away. I heard that news uh, from a couple of different sources from uh, over on our sister station on Sports Radio 740 where Jay usually worked. He worked with me on 1440-some, but he worked on uh, 740 most of the time. So, and he had been there for years, and he had been there off and on, like a long time ago. I remember even as a kid, he used to be John and Barry's producer. And I also heard it from Rick Hendrick, who is over on the Fox. So, the Cumulus family really devastated, really upset by the loss of Jay. And, and Jay had worked at Cumulus at one time, left for Atlanta, and did radio, sports radio there for a little while, and then eventually came back. But, man... Just a devastating loss. Jay was by far the best producer I ever had. I mean, the guy was just on it. Uh, he knew so much about music and, and knew so many different kinds of music that I never had to worry about the bumper music. You only had to tell him how to do something once, and he just did it, and he'd make it sound better. Um, I mean, just... But, but beyond that, I mean, yeah, he's a great producer, and, and don't get me wrong, great producers are hard to come by. I desperately wish I had a producer that was even half as good as Jay. Now, but ultimately, he was just such a such a nice guy. And another thing, too, somebody that was my producer despite not sharing many of my political opinions, and he was always kind and cordial, and even when he disagreed with me, never held it against me, never thought of me as, as less of a person or thought that he had to really dislike me. So when the one of the mantras of my show, which I didn't even do in my intro because I wanted to get to this, is speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. And that last one is one that, that Jay really embodied even before that was a maxim of the show. And by the way, sometimes when he did disagree, he'd chime in, and I welcomed that. I, I love hearing opposing opinions, and that's part of the reason that he was such a fantastic producer, is that he knew when to jump in, when to back off. Man, the radio community is a tight-knit community just because there's so few of us. And and just because there's, you know, it, it's not a big industry. There's, there's not that many people that are on the air or involved directly with being on the air. But Jay was definitely one of the greats, and the Montgomery community has lost one of its most fantastic broadcasters. Really, really sad news. Please, by all means, keep his family in your prayers. So, moving on to the news of the day, 
and and we certainly do pray that uh, may, maybe it was related to the coronavirus. I have no idea whether that was the case or not. We we don't know if he had been sick or not. Uh, very very sudden, but but you know, tr kind of transitioning. Let's talk about the coronavirus update, since I know that's why many of you have come here to hear this on Thursday. Since it is Thursday, we will go to the latest from the Alabama Department of Public Health. So let's go ahead and look at the numbers you can see there from the Alabama Department of Public Health. The state of Alabama has 60,158 confirmed cases, 550,179 have been tested, and even 1,200 deaths, and there are currently, or not currently, there have been 7,584 hospitalizations due to COVID-19 and the complications that come with that. And as of this week, 29,736 presumed recoveries. Now, a couple of good spots in the data because, now granted, I am definitely digging for a silver lining here because these numbers, they're bad. Ain't no way to spin it. It just, it's, a, it's been a bad, bad week for the coronavirus in the state of Alabama. Nobody would deny that, honestly, looking at the numbers. But there is a bit of a silver lining here. Because even though the deaths have even increased, and we'll talk about some of that in a second, yes, the deaths have increased, but the cases have increased at a larger rate. So in other words, even though our deaths are continuing to rise, our rates are rising at a faster rate, which to some degree is bad. You could certainly interpret it as bad because that means more people are sick, and of course we don't want people to be sick. But since the rate of positive cases has risen faster than the rate of death, even though the rate of death has actually increased a little bit this week as well, then our fatality rate is still low. It's still continuing to go lower. Because since we had a couple of really big days this week for deaths, it would be not at all inconceivable for that fatality rate to actually climb a little bit in the long run. But that has not happened, in fact. Since our last, you may remember our last update, it was floating right around the, the 2.5 mark. Well, this week it is at 1.9. So we've actually dipped below 2% of a fatality rate when looking at the statistics in Alabama. And it is also important to note that if the CDC's prediction that they released a couple of weeks ago is correct, that the numbers that we're seeing are actually 10 times less than they actually are. In other words, based on their sample of antibody testing, that there are actually 10 times more people that have had the virus that didn't die from it, then that means the real number is probably 1.9. So 1.9 is really good because remember, the fatality rate for the flu is generally speaking in the United States somewhere around 0.1 even. So if we're floating at 1.9, that means the virus is no longer even double the fatality rate of the flu. Still more serious than the flu, still has higher impact than the flu, but this thing, the, the longer it goes on, and hopefully this fatality rate will continue to go down, this thing is starting to look a lot more like the fatality rate of the, the common flu than it is, you know, some kind of bubonic plague or, or some kind of apocalypse coming for us. So, that is really, really good news, and I'm not in any way trying to downplay it, because like I said, the, the stats are real bad here. This just happens to be the only stat that is moving in the right direction this week. So that being said, let's go ahead and look at the new cases here in the state of Alabama, and you can see here, and this has been the trend for the past few weeks, but this week especially, 
has been really bad for new cases. We have had a lot, a lot of new cases. Now, since the death rate is not keeping pace, at least not so far, it is going up, but not going up at a rate that is, uh, you know, at a rate that is causing the fatality rate to climb as well, then you could say that the increase in cases, to, in, in a sense, is actually a good thing. And that's certainly true, but considering that we had multiple days this week that we came darn close to breaking 2,000. We had several record-breaking days for new cases this week, and so that's what the numbers look like for this week. We came, it was about, I think it was about 1,933 this week, so we came very, very close to having a single day with 2,000 new cases in the state of Alabama. However, I do want to do some comparisons here to give us some perspective on exactly how bad it is. So our seven-day average for this week is 1,653. Our seven-day average for the previous week was 1,283. So this is indicative of how huge a week this was for the state of Alabama in new cases. That is a difference of 370. Now, 370, if we were doing some of the comparisons that we've been doing in the past, where we're comparing like a month ago or 35 days ago, something like that, an increase of 370 cases, not nearly as, as problematic, but considering that it jumped 370 new cases in per day in one week, that's pretty darn significant. Like that, That's not anything to sneeze at, pun intended. Now, again, to, to give us a fair comparison, and this is the reason, especially with people talking about a new shutdown and other states doing like partial shutdowns. In fact, the state of Texas, their numbers were so bad this week that what they actually wound up doing is they did sort of like a, a partial shutdown, not quite to the level that they were back in March or was it April or March? Anyway, so, you know, I was following Alabama, not Texas. But Texas went back to closing like some bars and some restaurants and uh, lessening the capacity that some businesses could have. And so because of that, that's one of the reasons I want to do a comparison to the shutdown to show about where the levels are compared to when we were shut down. And, and that's partially to gauge its effectiveness. So let's look at the shutdown numbers. The 30-day average, in other words, the previous 30 days, the one that we, that we are in now, so 30 days in the past, the average for new cases has been 1,121 new cases per day. The shutdown, uh, the last 30 days of the shutdown, Alabama shutdown, which ended on May 21st, that average was 266. So that's a difference of 855. So just like you would expect, just like we predicted, there is a substantial increase in daily cases, especially considering how bad this week was. There's a substantial increase in daily cases now compared to the way that it was during the shutdown. However, um, let's, let's go ahead and look at test and testing to see how we're doing on that. Our testing numbers are actually very, very good because, of course, in this one, you actually want the numbers to be higher. New tests are actually a very, very good thing. So that being said, you can see there that we've had a lot of testing, especially like early this week, late last week. We did really well, but we sustained pretty high numbers, like new records, even later on this week. And so 
when it comes to testing, our seven day average for this week is eleven or yeah, our seven day average for this week is eleven thousand seven hundred and seventy five. Our previous seven day average six thousand nine hundred and thirty three. Gang, that that's a lot. And now I don't think that it's exclusively because we're testing more, because you could also say that the reason we are testing more is because more people are getting sick, more people are experiencing symptoms. Ergo, more people are going out to get tested. So I don't think it's right to dismiss new, uh, higher numbers of positive uh, cases when you're saying, oh, well, it's just because we're testing more. Well, yeah, that's probably a contributing factor. But you could also say the reason that we're testing more is because more people are getting sick. And that's probably right. So it is a factor. We are seeing more positive cases because we have seen more positive tests. But that doesn't explain all of it. So we see an increase of 4,842 in one week. That's an awful lot of new tests. We are doing way more testing even compared to what we were doing a week ago. Think about that. We increased it by about 30 to 40% in a single seven-day period. That's a lot. Now, our 30-day average for the past 30 days has been 8,171. During the shutdown... 4,152. So a couple months ago, we have increased our daily gains by uh, by about 4,000 on the average, because remember that average that we just showed you is including the previous 30 days. Now, let's look at the big one, because something happened with hospitalizations. I know we typically do hospitalizations, then deaths. We're not going to do hospitalizations this weekend. I will explain why in a second. So for now, let's go ahead and look at new deaths in the state of Alabama. So you can see there, really, really big increase on deaths this week. In fact, we had two days where we were consistently for a two-day period at 40 or more. So we had 41 day, 40, I think it was 46 or 47 the next day. Today's numbers are a little bit better. Today we got down to right around average where we, um, I know it sounds weird to say this, but thankfully we only had, I believe, 17 people lose their lives to COVID-19 today, which is a stark drop-off from yesterday. Hopefully the past two days were just a fluke. They were just kind of a flash in the pan and we returned to levels about what we had become accustomed to, floating somewhere between the 10 and 30 range, but it was... You know, it was really, really bad today. Like I said, no no matter how you look at the numbers, it's undeniable that we had a really, really bad week in the state of Alabama. So let's look at deaths, the seven-day average. Our seven-day average for this week, 22.6 people dying this week because of COVID-19. To compare that to our last week, that is a 11.6 average from last week. So we literally came within an eyelash, like if you round it up, it would be a doubling of the uh, deaths this week. So even compared to last week, because last week, you know, actually pretty mild when it comes to deaths. It was up a little bit, but not up even to where it was in late May around the time that the shutdown ended. We were actually still below shutdown levels of deaths even last week. Not so this week. We more than doubled that this week. And so those two days by themselves put us in a really bad strain because of that. The 30-day average, and this will be a pretty good indication of this as well, the 30-day average for the, the current 30-day period 
is about 14. So that, that does level out quite a bit when you, even considering how bad this week is, when you combine it with the previous month, it still looks a lot better. You compare that to the last 30 days of the shutdown, that was 12.8. So we are at roughly shutdown levels. So if you're counting the 30-day period, that is a difference of 1.2. So the deaths have increased, granted not by much, and not by nearly enough to keep pace and, and to increase our fatality rate, which is, thank heaven, that that's the case. But the deaths are up. And they're even up slightly, not a lot, but slightly 1.2 more deaths per day than they were in the shutdown period. Now, I think that this trend cannot possibly keep going, but what happened here is that the sheer numbers finally caught up to us. That's what's going on. Because we have been having consistently more cases and roughly the same hospitalizations for months on end now. We have never gotten to the point to where we were as bad on deaths or, you know, some, some weeks it would be better or worse than it was during the shutdown, but it was never like a, a huge difference when it came to hospitalizations, and it was always less when it came to deaths compared to where we were in late May. But with this many deaths, even with a much lower fatality rate, those numbers were going to catch up to us eventually. Because when you're looking at the comparison to the shutdown levels, when you're having 855 more people per day get the virus, well, then obviously that's going to increase your deaths at some point, even by even when you're counting the fact that the demographics are different, younger, healthier people are getting it now. Well, yeah, that is true. And thank God for that, because if we were having similar rates of death uh, now that we were back in the shutdown, then we would have a, a serious problem on our hands. But eventually, those larger numbers were going to translate into deaths that were at least at similar levels, which is where we are now. 1.2, th that's a little bit more than shutdown levels, but not we're not in like full-on panic mode. We, we're at more, but not so much more that it should be something that everybody is alarmed at. We're at, generally speaking, death-wise, the same place that we were during the shutdown. Way more people with cases, but about the same when it comes to deaths. Now, the reason that I did not include hospitalizations, and you may be sitting there thinking, but hospitalizations is like one of the most important stats that we could look at this week. And you're not wrong... But the problem is, the Alabama Department of Public Health, I gave you the raw number at the beginning, and you may notice, wow, our hospitalizations are way up than our update a week or two ago. The reason for that is they actually changed the rubric and they changed the system by which they record hospitalization. So in the span of a single day, they completely changed how the stat was counted, and they had basically hospitals doing what are known as self-reporting uh, so the hospitals themselves were reporting cases that they were bringing in as opposed to doing investigations for each individual case through the Alabama Department of Public Health. Now, I, I don't know which one is actually more accurate. I, I don't know enough about the nuance and I don't know enough about the system. I'm looking into that as we speak. Like I, I've been trying to figure out exactly whether this is a more accurate or a less accurate way to look into it. Uh the only issue that I have with hospitals self-reporting as opposed to the Department of Public Health actually going and making sure that these people's had the coronavirus is that hospitalizations, hospitals have been seeing that they get increased funding. 
and increased resources if they are somewhat over-reporting. And so there is an incentive to over-report. And the fact that the rate, the, the the raw numbers doubled overnight, that seems unlikely that we went from, you know, about three and a half thousand to almost seven thousand in one day. That seems a little bit too much of a jump for me to just buy into it right away. Still, I, I give you the numbers and I, I want to let you know I want you to be informed, but I also want you to know that there is at least a possibility this thing is being slightly inflated because of that. And regardless, whether it was inflated or not, even if this is a more accurate number, and if it is a more accurate way to measure it, then I'm glad that the Department of Public Health did implement it. But that also makes comparisons virtually impossible. Like if you're counting it a completely different way in your qualifications for what constitutes a COVID-19 case for a hospitalization in the state of Alabama, once you have altered that, it's impossible to compare that to a statistic that was counting it a completely different way. And so because of that, we're not going to do like a 30-day comparison. We're not going to show you a chart just because anything that we could show you would be misleading. They've only been doing it under the new system for one week. Now, next week, we could show you a comparison to last week. But if we showed you a comparison right now to the rubric that they had formerly, it would be an apples to oranges comparison. It isn't something all that would do is give you an incorrect understanding of the situation here. So I'm glad that they replaced it if this one's going to be more accurate, but it does make it virtually useless for our purposes, at least until we can get more numbers under the new system. And uh, ultimately, even this could be a good sign. Could be a bad sign, but it could also be a good sign. Let me explain. So it could be a bad sign if that means we've actually been underreporting the level of hospitalizations all this time. I don't know if that's true or not. I don't have any way to to you know gauge that. But obviously, if, if we thought we had way less hospitalizations than we actually had, and we're actually having far more now, obviously, bad sign. Obviously, not a good thing. But it could also be a good sign, because if they are going through and upgrading their system right now, it means that we hit enough of a calm, enough of a lull, that people are like, hey, maybe we should double-check some of these records. Maybe that means that people have enough staff available, enough extra help on hand uh, to, to be able to get their researchers or interns or lab techs or whatever to start crunching some of these numbers and actually looking at it and fleshing out, and we're getting better readings and, and better stats specifically because it actually is calmer and they've got a better system under their belt could also be a bad sign because based on the way that they're counting the system, moving it to hospitals, essentially self-reporting as opposed to the department of public health, looking into each case that could mean also that the department of public health is so overwhelmed that it basically had to switch to the hospitals doing their own reporting on these cases. So really, either way you look at it, it could be bad, it could be good. We just do not know at this point, and, and we'll be keeping an eye on that and trying to keep you sort of aware of what is going on there. But, you know, essentially what I want to go down to is either way you look at it, not a good week for the state of Alabama. Uh, the state of Alabama really needs to get this thing under control, and the fact that they haven't, um, I don't think that that's an indication to anything and anybody has necessarily done wrong when it comes to like government policies or officials or whatever. But, you know, we knew and, and we knew this going in that we were going to hit levels at least somewhere in the ballpark of where we are now 
when this whole thing took place. And so we'll just have to keep an eye on it and see what it looks like in a couple of weeks. Now, on to the biggest news story of the week, I would argue. Governor Kay Ivey's mask order. So that's right, Meemaw is at it again. She hasn't shut the state down, but she has issued a mandatory mask uh, order that is now part of the safer at home orders that she issued earlier. So basically it's a revised version of that that includes mandatory mask procedures. Now we could get into the weeds on this. We could talk about how ridiculous it is, for example, that even if you're outside, if you're not able to stay six feet away from people in the blazing hot 98 degree Alabama sun, that there's a chance that you're going to get the virus. I mean, Basically, you'd have to be almost making out with a person in order to get the virus from them in that those kinds of conditions, mask or no mask. So, yes, there is some levels of ridiculousness there. And, of course, me being more of a libertarian-minded person, I automatically default to the maximum level of freedom and the maximum level of responsibility that comes with that freedom. But the thing is, I really don't want to get into that debate now because I think it's the wrong debate that everybody is having. Uh, everybody's arguing whether or not the mask thing is a good idea or a bad idea, which, by the way, is also hilarious because most of these people don't even know the provisions that are included in the actual order that was given by KIV and, and aren't discussing the actual fine points of it and whether or not it's reasonable or unreasonable. First of all, before I get into all that, let me say the science is all over the place on this one. Uh, a lot of people are accusing both sides. It's funny, both sides are accusing one uh, each other of not going by the science. Well, the truth is, when it comes to masks, there's a lot of studies that say that masks do make a significant difference, and there's just as many studies that say that they don't, at least with this one particular virus. And so, you really, that's kind of a moot point right now because we know so little about this virus. We haven't had time to really do enough comprehensive studies, enough peer-reviewed studies to, to really know exactly what effect the mask has now. And so because of that, everyone is having this argument about, do the mask work? Do the mask not work? That's the wrong argument to be having, especially with this particular mask ordinance. Maybe that is the argument to be having in other states, but in this state, it definitely isn't because of the way that Governor Ivey implemented it. Because the thing is, Governor Ivey has absolutely no power to enforce this. This is an illegal action that our governor has taken that is not in compliance with the state constitution of Alabama or our state laws. And that is the bigger issue. Whether or not you agree with the mask, whether or not you think everything in it is a good idea, whether you think that maybe even Kay Ivey didn't even go far enough and we should be wearing full-on hazmat suits and uh, quarantining in place for the next 18 months, even if you're in that camp, you can't argue that this was a legal action taken by the governor. It simply is not. And just to illustrate my point here, let's go ahead and look at at least a part of Governor Kay Ivey's order here. So you can see, if you look at this highlighted section down here at the bottom, this is where Kay Ivey basically asserts that she has the authority to do this. And you'll see that the one that she cites there is Alabama Code 22-2-2 uh, authorizes the state health officer on behalf of the State Board of Health to direct that conditions prejudicial uh, to health in public places 
within the state be abated. Hmm, that's really interesting that KIV is using that as the justification for this order because I decided let's do our homework here and check and see if that actually is what that law says. And this is what I found. You can go and, and this is actually the the piece of legislation, the part of the state code that Governor Ivey is citing saying that this gives me the authority to implement the statewide mask mandate. So you'll read there, it says, the State Board of Health shall have authority and jurisdiction to inspect all schools, hospitals, asylum, jails, and then it just goes on to list a whole bunch of other places that they can uh, inspect and, and look at. And then it goes on, and other places of like character, and whenever insanitary conditions in any of these places, institutions or establishments or conditions prejudicial, uh, prejudicial to the health or likely to become so are found, proper steps shall be taken by the proper authorities to have such conditions corrected or abated. What about that authorizes a mandatory mask? Maybe some of my lawyer friends can explain how any of that comes anywhere within the same universe of the governor can issue a mandatory mask uh, ordinance that covers the entire state, even public places that are not indoors, even public places that are just like parks that are not even in a building. What that law was designed to do is to do things like have a health score at your restaurant. That the governor does have the authority to, if there is some report that there is a restaurant or some place that serves the public interest that is creating a public health crisis, they're able to go into that specific store, check it out, and if it is a problem, put a stop to it or, or correct it in some way. There is absolutely no sane person that would read that law and say, oh, what this means is that the governor can put out a blanket order over every citizen in the state to wear a mask when they're in public. Evil Knievel could not make that leap. And yet this is Governor Ivey saying, nope, that's the law that authorizes me to do that. This is about ins <laughs> inspecting school cafeterias and asylums and restaurants. This is kind of the same thing. In fact, I think it's actually worse than the example I'm about to give. But this is kind of the same thing as people looking at the, the Patriot Act or um, looking, well, we'll just go straight to the Fourth Amendment here, uh, looking at that and saying, yeah, well, yet the Constitution says that we have to, if we suspect somebody of a crime, that there has to be reasonable suspicion. We have to show up at their door with a warrant and we have to actually say what we're looking for. There has to be a name on that warrant. Uh, there has to be an actual suspect and, and all of that stuff. And they said uh, when it came to things like the Patriot Act, yeah, we can just kind of check everything. We can tap every phone in the country and just start a fishing ex expedition to try to find crimes. The name on one of the warrants that I was talking about there in that example, the name on the warrant was Verizon. Even though they weren't suspecting Verizon of a crime, they were just looking into Verizon's records and trying to find crimes based on the data that they collected from them. That's the same kind of ridiculous level of government overreach. Governor Ivey just made this power to create a mandatory mask uh, ordinance for the entire state out of whole cloth.
And that's the only law that she could come up with that had some semblance of some authority to be able to do this. Now, if Governor Ivey wants to have her staff go into literally every public building and space in the entire state, inspect it, and see that there are not people wearing masks and say, okay, you're now required to wear a mask here, and do that one by one in literally every single public space in the state, okay, she's within her authority to do so. But she cannot, without inspecting it, just say, this is a public danger, you all have to do this. Can't do it. That is not something the state of Alabama allows for her to do. And what's even worse than that is that this ordinance also violates current state law. So it's not just that she doesn't have the authority to implement this new ordinance. She's also in violation of current standing Alabama law in order to do so. This is another Alabama state law that you can look here. This is part of the state code, Alabama Code Title 22, Ment Health, Mental Health, and Environmental Control. And it says, a person commits the crime of loitering if he, and then it says, being masked, loiters, remains, or congregates in a public place. So in other words, it's actually illegal in the state of Alabama to be wearing a mask in a public place. You are committing the crime according to our state laws of loitering. Now, personally, I think that's dumb. I'm just going to be completely frank and upfront about that. I think that that is a stupid law. In fact, this came up, uh, what was it, about a year ago when we had that shooting in the Birmingham Mall and there was a guy that was protesting afterward that had a mask on and they arrested him because he had a mask on. I said then, this is a stupid law. But even though I don't like the law itself, it is indeed a law on the books in the state of Alabama. And so not only is Governor Ivey actually doing something she has no authority to do, on top of that, the thing that she is doing actually violates the current standing state law. Now, if Governor Ivey does want to do this, if she thinks that this is an actual public crisis, and I think you could make a compelling case for that, and that the mandatory mask need to be implemented, I think you're wrong on that, but if you believe that that is the case, there is a right way to do it. And the way to do it is to call an emergency session of the legislature, you could do this within a couple of days, and then have them all come back, congregate, discuss this, vote on it, pass it in the House, pass it in the Senate, put it on KIV's desk, and then she can sign it into law. Now, they'd also have to include in that law to repeal this other law that prohibits masks that I'm talking about. That would have to be a part of it in order for there to not be a conflict there. But the point is, there is a correct way to do it, and Governor Ivey is, of course, aware of the correct way to do it, but essentially just said, screw it, I'm going to make up my own powers and just, you know, make up crap as I go along. This is exactly what Barack Obama did with DACA. Actually, it's worse than what Barack Obama did. At least Barack Obama did give the legislature, in other words, Congress. He at least gave them the ability to try to pass it, and he got mad and, and didn't like his way, and so he decided to go ahead and do it himself. But Kay Ivey didn't even do that. She just went ahead and signed it and did it anyway without asking permission or giving Congress a chance to do this. It's one of the most insane things I have ever seen. So... 
there is a right way to do this. I disagree with the mask ordinance itself. I think that should be a personal choice, a personal decision. But even if you don't agree with that, even if you think the mask ordinance should be put into effect, you can still say, but Governor Ivey needs to do it the right way instead of just making up imaginary powers of the governor and then acting upon them. That's not something that our governor is allowed to do. There are going to be several counter-arguments to this. I understand that. The most common one that I've heard is, but people weren't following the guidelines. So? That is not an argument that makes this in any way legal. People not following the guidelines has nothing to do with whether or not the governor can actually move this forward. And another thing, it's kind of like... <laughs> it's the the, the I, I'm sorry the argument that because people weren't following the guidelines because people weren't wearing the mask that we have to make it mandatory it's kind of like the piece of flair argument that Jennifer Aniston's character in Office Space has you remember that she's wearing 15 pieces of flair because that's the minimum and it's just like these little buttons on her waitress uniform and. In this scene, her boss comes up to her and is like, you have to wear more than 15 pieces. 15 is just the minimum. She's like, but 15 is the minimum. I only want to wear 15. And he says, well, you're going to have to wear more. She's like, okay, then make the minimum 20 or make the minimum 25. He's like, no, um, the minimum is 15, but you need to be wearing more than the minimum. And she's like, well, then raise the minimum. See, you can't say that this thing is supposed to be a personal choice that people ought to have their freedom unless they use their freedom wrongly, in which case we're going to rob them of their freedom. That's not the way that this works. You're either free to do something or you're not free to do something. You're not free to do something as long as you make the right decisions, and then if you make the wrong decisions, we're going to take the freedom away from you. That's the whole 15 pieces of flair thing. If you're saying we just don't have the freedom to do it, then say that, but don't act like, oh, well... Governor Ivey was trying to give you the choice, but the second you stop making the choice that she recommends that you make, then she has the authority to go in and make you do it. That's not how this works, gang. That's not how the, any of this works. If that's the case, she should have... Well, she couldn't have legally done it, but um, this is something that should have happened from the very beginning. You can't say, well, people weren't following the, th- the imaginary standard that we gave, or like, well... We'll just give you the freedom to make the choice you want. Are you going to make the wrong decision? Well, we're going to smack you around for that, and we're going to take that choice away from you. Well, then that's not freedom. It's not freedom only if you make the right decisions. Freedom is freedom. And so that's a ridiculous argument. Uh, Another counter-argument is, but calling a special session would take too long. First of all, no, it really wouldn't. Calling a special session, they could probably get this thing done in about a week. I don't even think it would take a week. They could call a special session especially for something of this nature, you could probably gather people together, I'm guessing within about 48 hours. I think that would be plenty of notice to gather the congressmen of the state of Alabama and uh, at least get a quorum to where they could vote on this thing. And I know that the counter-argument to this is is kind of going to be exactly the same thing as uh, uh, basically it would become DACA then, if they said, well, what if the legislator wouldn't pass it? Well, then the legislator doesn't pass it. We have a system in place. That is the system. If you don't like the system and you want Governor Ivey to be the dictator of the state of Alabama, 
then you need to tell your congressmen that that's something that they need to do, they need to vote for. But until then, this is the system we have in place. You don't get to ignore the rules or just do whatever the heck you want to just because it is an emergency situation. This system was put in place for a reason. And in fact, it is normally within emergencies that governments do abuse their powers and become tyrannical. And I'm not just talking about the extremes of Adolf Hitler, Stalin, Mao, all those guys, even though those are also examples of this. This also happens in America all the time. Remember that the internment of Japanese Americans happened because we were in the emergency, and it was an emergency, but we were in the emergency of a war, therefore we justified taking away other people's rights. This is how government overreach happens. And you have to care about the little things in order for the big things to matter, because otherwise, there is a precedent set where this happens over and over again, and then they can really do something to abridge your rights and abridge your freedoms on a large, massive scale if you don't do something to stop it in the build-up. Another thing that is important to note here, because I know that there's also going to be a uh, counter-argument, well, the governor should have emergency powers in this situation. If that is the case, if you believe that, there's a way for that to happen, too. Call your congressperson, ask them to draft a bill that would grant the governor, whomever that may be in the future, emergency powers in situations like this, and have them come together and pass it. You can't just arbitrarily make up, well, the governor needs to have this power in this situation. Okay, well, that's why we set these things ahead of time. The entirety of the American system, the, the reason that our system moves slowly and it's supposed to be something that's cautious is because our founders looked through human history and they saw through a great deal of clarity that a system that moves slowly is the better system because it keeps us from making really big mistakes when we're in a panic. You don't need to be making these decisions when you're in an emergency. You need to be making these decisions before then when you're not in a panic, when you're thinking clearly. It's the same thing on a personal level. That's why it's important to prepare ahead of time for things like this. Because these are not the decisions a person that is in a panic, in a state of distress, needs to be making. It's something that should be made when you're calm and you have a cool head and you're not in the middle of something like this. But apparently I'm not the only one that is upset with Governor Ivy over this. I saw this, and, and frankly, I don't know that I condone this particular tactic, but I do think it's darn funny. Uh, this is from a restaurant in Huntsville, Alabama, called Johnny Grills, and they issued a notice today in response to the mask ordinance, and you can see there it says, Special News Alert, the following individuals are banned indefinitely from entering Johnny Grill's Huntsville restaurant. Madison County Health Officer Dr. Karen Landers, State Health Officer Dr. Scott Harris, Huntsville Mayor Tommy Battle, Madison Mayor Paul Finley, Madison County Commissioner Dale Strong, and Governor Kay Ivey. So they just banned everybody that was in favor of the mask in their area and the governor on that. They, they actually go on to explain that it was because of the mask. And uh, I love the tail end of this here, too. These orders create unnecessary stress, liability, physical, mental, and financial burdens on the restaurant and its employees. Now, that's probably 100% accurate, and I agree with it. I don't know that I agree with the tactic of banning someone in your restaurant. Now, they're a private business. They can do what they want to. I'm not saying they don't have the right to do it. But 
I, I don't know. It's kind of immature and petty. And part of the whole thing behind capitalism is even with people that you have wild disagreements with, you can go out and serve them. That's one of the beautiful things about capitalism. So I'm not sure that this is the best approach, nor do I think it'll actually affect any kind of change. But you got to admit, it's pretty darn amusing that they're like, okay, they're going to throw this ordinance down and it's already cost us money. It's caused all these problems for us and our customers. Screw you, you are banned indefinitely. Never shall Dr. Scott Harris or Kay Ivy enter this restaurant. I don't know. I just find the whole thing pretty darn funny. I do want to get serious, though, for a minute here, because I think that there is a question that deserves a great deal of thought and reflection. And that is, what does a Christian do in response to something like this? And the reason that I bring this up is not because it's something that I thought up. It's because seeing my, as you've just seen, very zealous response to how ridiculous this mask ordinance is, I had a Christian brother actually reach out to me and talk to me about all of this, which I appreciated. And anytime anybody wants to reach out to me because they believe that I'm in error or that I've overstepped my bounds, especially when they do so in the spirit of reconciliation and they're not just attacking me, they actually want to have a conversation about that and, and talk and, and have a back and forth, I always welcome that, especially when it's a Christian brother. But he was asking about whether or not it's okay for a Christian to flout the law like this. I take issue with the categorization of this being a law, and I've explained that in great detail, but, but we'll get to that in a second. So basically, my friend just reached out to me, and one of the things that he talked about is, is it okay for a Christian, especially somebody in your position that has a big platform, that kind of thing, to just say, nope, not going to wear the mask, not going to do it, don't care what you do, isn't that something that is not consistent with the attitudes of a Christian or what a Christian ought to do? Because I, I'm, of, I'm of that opinion. When it comes to the mask thing, I'm not going to wear it. And, and, and I was wearing the mask previously, I was wearing it, I put it on to go vote the other day. Um, I was fine with wearing the mask back when it was a suggestion. I am not okay with it when someone is telling me I must do so. But it has a lot to do specifically with the way that this law was put into place, and I've explained that in great detail. But none of these are unreasonable questions. And in fact, these are questions that Christians ought to ask themselves when it comes to them and how they relate to the world around them and, and how they sort of uh, how they balance that idea of, of being a Christian and also being a, a uh, being a follower of Christ and also at what level they're supposed to be obedient to the law. And one of the things that he cited was Romans 13, 1 through 2 and 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17, which is wholly appropriate. They, they are verses that are 100% appropriate to bring up in a discussion like this. But here's the reason that those verses, which do tell Christians that they must submit to worldly authority, they must submit to the government and its rule, here's why it does not apply in this particular situation. Who is the authority in Alabama? Because it does say to submit to governing authority. And I agree. Something a Christian is commanded to do by Scripture. In this situation... Who is the authority? Well, the authority is Governor Kay Ivey. But where does Kay Ivey get her authority? Where does she derive it from? 
the Constitution of the state of Alabama. One of the things that makes America very, very different is that unlike other countries where they have a dictator or a monarch or even a group of people or a democracy where it's, it's just a popular vote, is that in America, the law is the supreme authority. And all of our elected officials derive their authority directly from those documents. They didn't create the documents. The documents created them. America had a constitutional convention of the states, which then created the Constitution, which became the supreme law of the land. And that happened on a smaller scale, and many different times, in the state of Alabama. The governor exists because of the Constitution. The Constitution created the governor. The governor did not create the Constitution. The same is true for our elected officials in the House and the Senate and our Supreme Court judges, all of that. And so law is the ultimate authority in this situation. And so Governor Ivey has only the authority which the law has granted unto her. And so I am submitting to the authority of this land, and that authority is the law of the state of Alabama, not Governor Ivey. Now, Governor Ivey does have many very legitimate powers to act and to make decisions of governor, and when she is doing so within the purview of the power that she has been granted by the Constitution of the state of Alabama, I am more than willing to comply. I believe that you are actually acting in contradiction to the scripture if you refuse to comply with the, of course, obvious exception if they were acting in some way that violates God's law, because that's the ultimate authority, of course. But when it comes to that, I actually am obeying and submitting to the authority of the laws of the state of Alabama. I am not doing so to Governor Ivey because she is trying to act on an authority that has not been granted to her. To help illustrate my point here, because I do recognize her authority, I just don't recognize authority that she doesn't have. A police officer is also somebody that is charged with enforcing the laws of the state. If a police officer came up to me and arrested me because I have a similar appearance to a suspect, even if he's 100% wrong, that officer still has the right to bring in people for questioning if they believe that they may be connected to a crime. And so, even though I wouldn't like it, even though I would not be a fan, I don't have the, I don't have the ability to rebel against that in a Christian way. In order to do what Jesus commands us to do, in order to do what Paul commands in Romans, you know, by the authority of Christ, I have to submit to his authority because that is an authority that has been granted to him legitimately by the law. If a police officer comes up to me and says, give me $100, well, he doesn't have the authority to do that. He has the authority to do a lot of things, and I have to submit to that authority, but he doesn't have the authority to just take money from me. That is not an authority that has been granted to him by the laws or by the other governing authorities in the state and in the nation. Ergo, I don't have to submit to that. Just because the person has some kind of official title or functions in society in some official capacity, that does not mean we have to do absolutely everything they say. It's not as though we're the Jim Carrey character from Yes Man where everything they ask us to do, we have to go yes. That's not what 
Romans 13 and 1 Peter is commanding us to do. We are to submit to legitimate worldly authority, but in America where the law is the ultimate authority, there are certain things that even an officer of the law could suggest to us that we do not have to submit to. To illustrate my point here, and this is something that is, is from the scripture, in the 25th chapter of Acts, Paul is at a tribunal where he is being tried for crimes that have been alleged uh, of him by many different people, chiefest among them the elders, uh, therefore the Jews. And he's not getting a fair trial. People are lying about him. They're, they're trying to come up with false witnesses. Like This whole thing's very clearly a kangaroo court. And a Roman official named Festus is overseeing this whole thing. And he's going back and forth with Paul. And keep in mind that Paul is not just a Jew. He's also a Roman citizen. And so what he does is he says, I appeal to Caesar. So what just happened there? Just because Festus was a Roman official did not mean that Paul had to do absolutely everything that Festus asked him to do. Paul still had rights as a Roman citizen, and he exercised those rights in the spread of the gospel. Now, my goals are not nearly as noble. I just don't like the mask mandate. I don't think that there's anything moral or scriptural about that. So I'm not trying to compare myself on that level, but what I am saying is, that Paul did not surrender all of his rights as a Roman because the Bible told him that he, or the, the Holy Spirit informed him that he had to submit to authority. Now, he is submitting to authority. And like Paul, I am willing to submit to legitimate authority, but I also have the ability as an American to exercise my rights to defy authority when it has overstepped its bounds. Governor Ivey is doing something that she has absolutely no legal authority to do so. And I am also prepared to go through the proper legal channels, just as Paul was, to prove his innocence. So if I am arrested for not wearing a mask, if that is something that happens, then I will gladly submit to the Alabama court system to prove my innocence, just like Paul submitted to Caesar in order to do so. I'm not somebody that's an anarchist that just wants to tear everything down or, or run away and get away with it or anything like that. I'm fine with going through those channels. But that's something that we've got to do here. And a, an obvious counter-argument to this and, and one that I've heard, okay, well then you have to wear the mask until the courts hash it out. No. To go back to our police officer discussion, does he just get to hang on to your $100 until the courts hash out that he's not allowed to steal from you? No, you have the right to deny him right then and there. He's not giving you a lawful order. You have the ability to say no. Just because he is an authority figure does not mean that you have to submit to illegitimate authority that he might claim. You know, if, if now we do this as a utility, so I'm not even sure how this works, but you know, a garbage collector is technically working for the government. You have to do absolutely everything a, a guy that is a garbage collector says. If, if he says, hey, give me the keys to your house, you have to do that. Let's take it e to an even more ridiculous level. Let's use go back to a police officer again. Let's say it's a male police officer and a female uh, person that he has stopped, and he orders you to remove all your clothes. Well, he doesn't have the right to do that. It's the same thing as the $100 bill scenario. There are certain things that it is okay to resist right then and there. Is the woman supposed to just strip down and say, oh, well, I guess I'll just have to hash that out in court later? No. 
Christians are not obligated to submit to illegitimate authority that somebody just claims out of the blue like that. And Governor Ivey is no different in that respect. Now, ultimately, just like us, Paul was first and foremost a citizen of heaven, but that did not mean he forfeited his rights as a citizen to Rome. He used them wisely and actually was able to spread the gospel further by doing so. And that's the standard that we ought to be following. All right, we're going to take a quick break here, and we'll be back in just a minute with a daily dose of stupid on tactics. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Now you messed it up. <laughs> You're stupid. And for today's daily dose of stupid, Burger King. Burger King actually just released an ad explaining their new campaign for going green. When cows fart and burp and splatter, well, it ain't no laughing matter. They're releasing methane every time they do. And that methane from the rear goes up to the atmosphere. And pollutes our planet, warming me and you. Yes, and nothing that the past is a greenhouse gas that'll trap the sun's heat and change our climate too. <laughs> and for now, there ain't a question that it's helping cow suggestion had in planting grass so they can play their part. And the scientists have proven that it works. <laughs> All right, so beyond the just ridiculous level of cringiness of that entire spiel that you just heard, <laughs> I love the end of that. That's probably my favorite part is like, since we're part of the problem, we're going to be part of the solution. It's like such a self-hating little dig at themselves, which is very, very odd. Uh, you know, I'm not in advertising, but... That breaks pretty much every known law of advertising. First of all, you punch yourself in the face. Just at the end there saying, well, we're part of the problem. And then the other part of the ad, again, I'm not like a marketing genius, but I think I'm smart enough to know that when you're a company that sells food, you should probably steer away from your ads featuring people climbing out of cattle rectums uh, at, like a doorway and mentioning, just quoting them, cow farts and splattering, which I guess is a reference to cow diarrhea. Like, if you're trying to sell food, stay away from that stuff in your ads. That might be a winning strategy for when you're trying to sell people something to eat. <laughs> so just just on the surface level before you get to any of the stuff that they're saying being sci being scientifically wrong or being, you know, just obvious political pandering, remove all of the politics, remove all of the partisanship. The ad itself is incredibly mind-numbingly dumb 
for a food company, a restaurant chain, to be putting out just on that level by itself. But the thing that's so crazy about it, your name is Burger King. If you're so convinced that cattle, you know, flatulating, that that is somehow causing the planet to burn up, and, and we're going to destroy the planet if we continue to eat beef, then show me the courage of your convictions and shut down. It's the same thing that I do when people try to give me this insane Malthusian and economics lecture that has been proven for about, has been completely disproven for about 200 years now. Uh, that we just have too many people and there's overpopulation and we can't increase the population. I was like, well, then why are you still alive? Now, granted, I'm not encouraging anyone to kill themselves, just like I'm not encouraging Burger King to shut its doors. I'm just saying that you merely existing is proof that you don't really believe in the lie that you're trying to peddle. Because the population people, if they were, you know, real about that, if they really believed that there were too many people in the world, then they would start with themselves and kill themselves. In the same way that Burger King, if they really believed that beef was this incredibly harmful thing that is destroying the planet, the first thing that they would do is close their doors and not serve any more beef. You don't believe your own psychosis. It's the same reason that you've got people like Al Gore that crow about carbon emissions despite using a private jet to fly everywhere. It's the same reason that you have people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez that less than two days after telling people that they need to just stop eating beef is having a dinner with her uh, campaign, or was it her campaign strategy guy or her chief of staff? Either way, and he's having a giant burger the size of my head. Like, these people don't really believe this stuff. And Burger King doesn't believe this either. They don't believe a word of this. If they did, the very first thing they would do is shut down every chain that they own. And Burger King's a pretty woke uh, company anyway. Like, they're right up there with Starbucks and Target and uh, Chipotle and all of them. And, and they constantly do this ridiculous virtue signaling thing, despite the fact that they have an obvious lack of conviction or belief in it themselves. The thing that is odd about that, though, is who are you appealing to? Because it kind of makes sense for Chipotle and uh, Starbucks to do this kind of stuff because that's their audience. Those guys are playing to the uh, imbecilic hipster crowd, like the, the people that think that they're smarter than everyone else despite not knowing anything. Uh, the, the people that are, you know, 31 and living in their mom's basement. Those people, yes, those are people that Starbucks should be pandering to. I'm not saying everyone that drinks Starbucks is that. I'm just saying that that is a significant portion of their customer base. And so doing all these crazy leftist virtue signals, it kind of makes sense if you're Starbucks. That's your core audience. Same thing is true of Chipotle. Same thing is true of, well, to a lesser extent, but there's still a, a good amount of people that, that fall into the target demographic of target. So, yeah, wordplay intended there. That's the target demographic right there. At least some people in that sort of uh, far-left-leaning woke culture 
they tend to favor Target over places like Walmart or whatever, and so that is part of their core base. Do you think any of those people would ever be caught dead in a Burger King? Like, seriously, the, the guy that's listening to indie rock and uh, has the scarf on when it's 80 degrees outside and the, the thick rimmed glasses and the, uh, the I don't know, the paper boy hat or whatever, do you think that guy's eating at Burger King? The people generally, and granted, I don't go to Burger King real often, but the people that you generally see in a Burger King, they couldn't give a flying crap about any of this. Which is funny because the whole ad is about flying crap. But anyway, nonetheless, they don't care. And so it just astounds me that Burger King has figured out a way to tick off everybody. Is it appealing to country music fans? No, generally your country music fans don't care about this kind of junk anyway. And the people that would care about this stuff probably aren't country music fans, and so they're not going to get the draw of this weird pseudo-country music thing. I mean, yeah, they're, you know, maybe your uh, Tim McGraws or your, your super progressive far-left people actually in country music might like it, but the people that listen to country music, not so much. And so I, I really am kind of baffled just from a marketing standpoint of who do they even think that they're appealing to? with this kind of stuff. But here's the thing. Not only does the ad make no sense from a marketing standpoint, it's not even based on anything that's real. The science itself is wrong. Because if you look here, this was a joint study that was done by the United States Department of Agriculture and Virginia Tech. They put together several models, and, and this particular model was basically they, they took the scenario and did the stats and did all the math and said, all right, what would the world look like? Could we actually reduce carbon emissions if we just got rid of literally every livestock animal, every poultry animal, chickens, cows, hogs, all of it? If we just got rid of that entirely, since this has become a, a popular leftist talking point, um, that we need to reduce meat and that's going to help save the environment. This was their findings when it came to what would happen if we actually did all of that. You see there, United, uh, U.S. agriculture was modeled to determine the impacts of removing farmed animals on food supply adequacy and greenhouse gases, emissions. The modeled system without animals increased total food production 23%, altered food availability or available for domestic consumption, and decreased agricultural USGHG 28% but only reduce the total USGHG by 2.6 percentage units compared with a system with animals, diets formulated for the U.S. population in the plants-only system had a greater excess of dietary energy and resulted in greater numbers of deficiencies in essential nutrients. The results give insights into why decisions on modifications to agricultural systems must be made based on description of direct and indirect effects of change on dietary rather than individual nutrient basis. So that was a whole lot of jargon, but essentially what they're saying there is if we were to get rid of literally every animal in America, every single domestically raised animal for the purpose of consumption, just got rid of all of them, it would only decrease the carbon emissions by 2.6%. For the entire country, by the way, if you're factoring that up for what it would look like on the global scale, that's only 0.36% of carbon emissions cut by that. 
And they're saying, and you also can't neglect the fact that there would be sufficient and severe dietary problems that would be caused by that if everybody was only eating vegetables and another plant-based substances. So if that were to take place, serious dietary ramifications, and even if we got rid of all of them, every single one, cut out meat entirely, it's only going to be 0.3% of all carbon emissions in the world. You talk about straining at a gnat to swallow a camel. I mean, man, that is a ridiculous level of consequences for virtually no change whatsoever in whether or not it actually makes a difference. But here's the thing that's even crazier about all of that. Even that tiny little 0.36% of all global emissions that would be cut out, and that's if we got rid of literally every single farm animal in America it still wouldn't even have an impact that measures up to that because the greenhouse gases that are emitted by them, those aren't the bad greenhouse gases anyway that stick around and cause any kind of global warming. And keep in mind, I don't necessarily buy into a lot of the global warming stuff. I'm very skeptical on whether or not it's actually going to be this apocalyptic level of problems that people are claiming. But I'm about to cite somebody who does believe in that level of it and, and is absolutely one of the people that is, is pushing this narrative that we have to drastically reduce greenhouse gas emissions in order to save the planet. I don't believe that, but this person does. Uh, her name is Dr. Michelle Kane at Oxford, and she said that the GTCH4, which is the methane that is produced by cattle and other ruminants when digesting, and, and uh, this is both uh, emissions by belching, by flatulence, everything. This is their total methane put out. The methane that cattle emit has a half-life of about a decade, so its warming effect deteriorates very quickly compared to other greenhouse gases. In fact, she found that the half-life for that methane is so low that even if you had a constant supply of methane, in other words, even if you have a herd of cattle that you, every single year, you continue, you have a steady increase in methane, even if you increase the size of your your flock and increase the level of methane, no matter how much methane you add to the atmosphere, the half-life would cause it to basically balance itself out so you cannot increase global temperature no matter how much of this particular kind of methane you pump into the atmosphere. Now, there is a different, uh, a different type of methane that is produced by burning fossil fuels that she says is far more problematic. And again, this is a person that actually does believe in the apocalyptic version of climate change. But she's saying when it comes to cattle and livestock, nope, not a concern. That methane does not in any way contribute to a rise in global temperature. She said no matter how much you pump into the atmosphere, the half-life is so low that it is impossible for people to, with the kind of methane that is produced by cattle, actually increase global temperature. It just deteriorates far too quickly for that to, to be a problem. And so Burger King is doing this based off of absolutely nothing. The thing is, because of how ridiculous it is, because of how demeaning it is towards farmers, I don't, I don't know about you, but if I'm a farmer, I do not want any of my beef to go to Burger King after seeing something like this and then basically blaming me for a global catastrophe, me just trying to put food on America's tables. At that point, I'm just done. I'm out. I don't want anything to do with that company anymore. But the truth is, me being a non-farmer and not really being a Burger King customer, there's not a whole lot I can do to boycott them. 
like this would be something that would be enough of a turnoff for me that I'm like, you know what? I'm done. I don't really want to deal with these people anymore. But the thing is, Burger King already did that to me a long time ago. Their food is so terrible. Their service is so terrible that I have no desire to eat at a Burger King, even if they were uber conservative and supported gun rights and, and b basically became what Chick-fil-A was two or three years ago. Now, Burger King's not that. I mean, this is the company that brought you the Rainbow Walker, uh, the Rainbow Whopper for Pride Month. So I already didn't really like them that much. But the thing is, even before all of that, even before they went political and, and tried to go super woke, I wasn't going to eat there because their food sucks. I mean, the fries are, they got the, like the worst fries in fast food. Their, their fries are just awful. Uh, the meat patties are so thin you can barely taste it. When you bite into a Whopper, basically all you're tasting is bread. And the bread don't taste all that good, so you're not really getting a whole lot out of it. I just don't get it. Like, it, there's other people that like Burger King. I don't think you're a horrible person if you eat there. After this, I wouldn't want to eat there even if I did like their food. But to be perfectly honest, I just I don't get the draw. I, I would boycott Burger King, but boycotting Burger King would look exactly the same as what I do now, which is just not eat at Burger King. So ultimately, I think that that is the free market at work, and I think that's the way that it ought to operate. So let's go ahead and go to the chaplain's report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for The Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on Tactics. Chaplain's Report today does come from the book of Samuel, and we'll be discussing that going along with our series on Samuel. Now, if you haven't caught the previous Chaplain's Report that deals with this, just so you know where we are, so you're kind of caught up, Saul is, at this point, has already gone forth to the Amalekites, and God commanded him to, to wipe them out. Every single person, destroy the entire civilization, don't take spoil of them, destroy the livestock, destroy everyone. Basically, there should be no way that anybody would even know that the Amalekites existed once you were done with this. That was God's command. And what Saul does is, he doesn't do it. He does most of it, but he decides to save some of the the stuff, save some of the spoil, save some of the livestock, and, and also let's not kill King Agag, let's just keep him alive. Everybody else is dead, but we'll just kind of keep him with us. So as you can imagine, obviously disobeying a direct command from God, God has not been very pleased with him, and we've already seen where Samuel starts to chastise him a little bit. Uh, let's go ahead and see Samuel's response here in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 17 through 19, where he says, Samuel said, Is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel? And the Lord sent you on a mission, and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? but rushed upon the spoil, and did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord? These are good questions. 
basically Saul just, or sorry, Samuel just tells it like it is and says, Saul, God has already done quite a bit for you. And remember, he's speaking directly for God. This is a message directly from God. So this isn't just Samuel adding his own commentary. And what God says to Saul there is, look at everything that I've done for you. Even though you were not somebody of renown, even though you weren't somebody that was, you know, in line to be king or anything like that, I took you from nothing and I made you king and I put you in charge of my people. Why are you disobeying me, Saul? This is a very, very serious question and it speaks to situations that we are here with today because I think one thing this actually does Ill illustrate, even though it's not the most obvious lesson, is stewardship. Because what do we see here? We see that God is asking basically, Saul, I've done all these things for you. Why aren't you listening to me? That is a lesson in and of itself, and that is certainly a correct way to look at this story. I think that it's one that merits a second look, and, and I think that God can say the same thing to us in a lot of ways. If he were to say, Caleb, Caleb, look, I've given you a radio show, I've given you an audience that likes to listen to you, I've given you the ability to, to read all these books and to live in a land of prosperity where you can do all of this, why are you using this medium in a way that would not please me? Like, if God were to have that conversation with me, and I know he doesn't speak to people through prophets like he did back then, but that would be similar to what Saul is going through right now. That Saul has been given this amazing blessing of being Israel's king to lead the tribes of Israel, to be a leader to, to Israel's people, to lead them toward doing what God commands them to do. And Saul does the exact opposite. And so that in and of itself is a powerful message. But it also shows that God expects things from us when he blesses us. There's a fantastic line, one of my favorite movie lines of all time, and I think this movie is frankly severely underrated. It has Sean Connery as King Arthur and, and Richard Gere as Lancelot. Uh, there's a great line where Sean Connery, playing King Arthur, says, God makes us powerful only for a little while so that we can help one another. See, that's a concept that Saul doesn't get here. Unfortunately, Saul had forgotten that with the blessing of being the king, with the blessing of, of being the leader of God's people, that came with responsibility. That came coupled with the obligation to do things that God would want him to do. And to a degree, God gives this to everybody. No, he doesn't make all of his kings, obviously. But, like, we're given the responsibility as Christians to go out and seek and save the lost, part of the Great Commission. Well, that is part of the privilege of being one of God's chosen elect. That we have to go out and, and to try to save others and to preach the gospel of Christ to other people. That's part of that privilege. Yes, we get the benefits of being part of the body of Christ, but it comes with the expectation that we will use that privilege to seek out others to join God's family. And that's what is happening to Saul here is God saying, look, Saul, I, I gave you this amazing blessing. Why aren't you using it to lead Israel the way I told you to? And when we neglect a responsibility just like Saul did, sometimes that blessing is removed. Now, this is getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. But we see that later on, because of 
his sin here and in other places where he does essentially the same thing and disobeys God, that that blessing is eventually taken away from him and given to another, given to King David. And that was because Saul neglected his responsibility, ergo, the blessing that was that came with that responsibility is taken away from him. It's the same thing that we see in Jesus' parable of the talents. You remember the last guy at the end that didn't go out and make gain and just had that same talent at the end? What happened? His blessing was taken away, and that blessing was given to somebody who was going to make use of that talent. And so this is what's happening here in real time, is that Saul disobeys, he does something wrong, he, uh, he goes against what God told him to do, and God says, okay, that, res- that expectation of what you were going to do with that blessing has not been fulfilled by you, ergo, I will remove that blessing from you, give it to somebody who will use it more wisely. And so when we neglect to do that which God has commanded us to do, especially when he's given us some kind of specific blessing that correlates with that, we can't be surprised when the, the blessing goes if we refuse to fulfill our obligation to God. And this is a little bit further illustrated in the second verse that I want to share with you in 1 Samuel 15, verses 20 through 21. This is Saul's response here. Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of the Amalekite, uh, uh, the king of Am- Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, the sheep and the oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Now, this is the second time that Saul brings this up, that, oh, we brought back the stuff to sacrifice to God. So he's trying to hedge his bets here. He's trying to say, well, yeah, we we took some of the spoils, but we were doing it for God. And we'll get into that a little bit in our next installment where we talk about obedience. But notice Saul's pattern here. He starts with denial, and then he moves to blame. Starts with denial, then moves to blame. This is unfortunately a very human pattern to fall into. We see it with sins over and over and over again in the Bible. He starts out with, oh, no, no, I I did obey the commandment of the Lord. I absolutely obeyed the commandment of the Lord. I just, you know, I did utterly destroy them, I mean, like, mostly utterly destroyed them. I still have Agag, and we kept some of the the sheep and the oxen, but, you know, I did, like, mostly do what God told me to do, so, yeah, I'd say I fulfilled the commandment. Okay, well, did you do it or did you not do it? Because that's really the only two options here. You either obeyed God or you didn't obey God, and this is clearly a case of you not obeying God. Which, by the way, I think is a warning as well. If we have to work too hard to justify our action to God probably not a great idea. That's probably an occasion where we need to slow our roll a little bit and and do some self-evaluation as to whether we're not on the the right track. Maybe we are, but if you got to work that hard, if you have to come up with this big, long explanation that Samuel issues here to explain how, no, I actually did obey God, maybe he's right, but in this case, you can clearly see, no, not so much. He's clearly in violation of what God had told him to do. And that in and of itself, because the thing is, Saul knew. Saul knew that he had messed up. Saul knew that he had disobeyed God. 
You can tell that by his reaction. You can tell it by the verses earlier where he tries to weasel his way out of it and hide the fact that there were animals there and hide the fact that King Agag was there. And he does own up to it eventually after he's caught, which, you know, that's a big testament to his character. But then after he does own up to it, he owns up to it in a sense, but then also kind of tries to justify it and say, no, no, but I really did obey God's commandments. And then he moves to blame. But these people, you know, the, the people with me, the people that are given to my charge, they spoiled and, and took some of the things and took some of the livestock. And so now he's blaming other people for him not obeying. Now, granted, I'm sure that they'll have to answer for that on judgment too. But the point is Saul could have stopped it. Saul could have absolutely put a stop to it. If it sounds like another one of those things, just like when he offered the sacrifice too early, when everybody else was saying, Saul, you got to go ahead and give the sacrifice. We're getting restless. We're getting tired. See, this is a recurring problem in Saul's life. Whenever you ask people, what is Saul's big mistake? A lot of people will cite jealousy or pride, and those are definitely in there. Don't get me wrong. But I think a lot of Saul's problem is he just cares way too much what other people think. He cared about it when he offered the sacrifice early, even though he knew that he shouldn't have. He cares about it here, where a lot of people are kind of just talking him into disobeying God because, well, you know, they really wanted to keep the livestock. And they said, oh, you know, it's such a shame to ruin such great livestock and, and just let all this stuff go to waste. And so they kind of talked him into and coaxed him into doing it. That's not a leader. And we see later that his jealousy spurs up because all of the other people are saying that David killed tens of thousands and he only killed thousands. See, Saul cares way too much what other people think about him. And it led him down a path of destruction. This is the thing that we have to be so careful of is because if we're constantly worried about what the world thinks about us, and this is especially dangerous in our world or in our social media world that we live in right now, if we get hung up on what everybody thinks about us and, and we're just constantly obsessed with other people's opinions of us, that is going to lead us down a path of destruction. And that's exactly what it did with Saul. He was so concerned with pleasing everybody and making sure everybody liked him and thought he was a good king that he was willing to disobey a direct command from God's mouth in order to appease the people. He was concerned with men's opinion of him more than God's opinion, and that's where he messed up. And that really does show a contrast between him and David. There are several occasions in the life of David where David is given the opportunity to do something that would undoubtedly please the people and everybody in, the, in his army would agree with, but God wouldn't. And that's where David goes, nope, got to go with God. Saul goes, eh, I'll go with the people. That's the difference in these two. You see, leadership is a very, very heavy burden. But God is reasonable. When people did essentially the same thing under Moses' command, God didn't blame Moses. Why? Because Moses didn't know about it. Moses did everything he was supposed to. He conveyed the message he said to all the people, no, no, you don't take any spoil from these people. You don't take their gods. You don't take their idols. You leave it. Then he had a guy that did. God didn't blame Moses because that wasn't Moses' fault. Moses did what he was supposed to do. God does not blame you for the sins of other people. But if you are in a leadership position and you allow something to go on, then all of a sudden God has something to say about it. 
See, God only judges a person based on their individual choices, but that which you condone, especially when you're in a leadership position, that is one of your choices. Saul had the option of stopping this in its tracks. If, if the exact same thing had happened and Saul didn't know about it, he told them, no, destroy everything, go ahead, get rid of it, kill Agag the king and, and everything else, and then they just saved it anyway, that wouldn't have been Saul's fault. But God could see into his heart. He knew that Saul was the one that gave them permission to do that. He knew that he was the one that orchestrated this whole thing because he wanted to please men rather than God. And that's a trap that we can find ourselves in because... If we are in a leadership position, we have to be aware of the fact. If we're in any position of influence at all, whether it's in our family, as a, a parent, as an elder in the church, as a minister, as somebody that, that has a platform where other people will listen, even just as a friend, if we're in a position of influence, we have a responsibility to obey God's command and to make sure we are using that influence in the correct way. Because that is something we will have to answer for. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. Only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.